This episode is brought to you by Dietz and Watson. Uh, Molly, it's time we have the talk about hot dogs. Oh, oh, okay. Well, hey, (laughs) I'm looking for a hot dog that's the real deal, Matthew. Like a classic hot dog that like when you think of like the platonic ideal of a hot dog, Mm -hmm. I recommend Dietz and Watson's Dietz Dogs. Ah, well, I've heard that they're handcrafted and made using only Dietz and Watson premium meat. I can vouch for this because Dietz and Watson sent us a big box of hot dogs and other delights. And wife of the show, Lori, and I had them for dinner last night. We had uh, the classic beef Dietz dogs with uh, toasted buns with sauerkraut and pickled jalapenos and Dietz and Watson ballpark style yellow mustard. Do you think you'd recommend Dietz and Watson hot dogs for fried rice? Oh, yeah. Fried rice with some sliced hot dogs. I'm going to be doing that soon. Wife of the show, Lori, is going to be making the hot dog flour buns from Christina Cho's cookbook, Mooncakes and Milk Bread. Very excited for this. Mm, And I'm especially pleased because Dietz and Watson does things the right way. So this means like no additives, no fillers, no artificial flavors, no cutting corners. You can feel good about this stuff. Dietz and Watson. It's a family thing since 1939. Shop now at Dietz slash the right way. That's Dietz, D-I-E-T-Z, and Watson.com slash the right way. I'm Molly. And I'm Matthew. And this is Spilled Milk, the show where we cook something delicious, eat it all, and you can't have any. Or apparently, in this case, kick something delicious, because you said you were going to kick a boy. <laughs> I'm going to kick it! <laughs> Question, can I yeah. kick it? Um, I You can kick it. Thank you. First off, happy birthday to mom of the show, Judy Amster. This episode comes out on her birthday. I won't say what birthday number it is. Happy birthday, Judy. Uh, we wouldn't be here without you. That's true. I mean, some of us would. That's, <laughs> Let's well, be honest. Yeah, but, yeah. but you probably wouldn't be like here in the studio by yourself, like... <laughs> Talking Just to waiting, like, waiting like, for you to sign on because you never you, existed. Right. If I never existed, would I be a ghost? <laughs> wow. This is like one of those if a tree falls in the forest. Okay. You know what? I should say what today's episode is. Oh, that's a great idea. So today we are talking about tamales. Yes. We've been mm-hmm. wanting to do this for a long time, but we knew we needed a guest and we knew we needed the right guest. And I I think we found her. We've got the right guest. So more on that in a minute. But before she joins us, we wanted to um, have Mr. Etymology come in and just start us right off with talking about the origin of the word tamale. Okay, so I found this interesting. I don't know if anyone will find it as interesting as I did, but let's give it a shot. I saw that you wrote about it in your journal. I did. Yeah, the word the word uh, tamale begins in the Nahuatl language. And if you're wondering why I'm saying tamale rather than tamal, we'll get to that in a minute. Nahuatl is a group of related languages currently spoken by about 2 million speakers in central Mexico. And the modern language group is descended from the language of the Aztecs. Mm-hmm. And the word in Nahuatl is tamale. It's, uh, it's romanized as T-A-M-A-L-L-I. Okay. Then the word entered Spanish, of course, uh, in the era of Spanish conquest in the 16th century. And in Spanish, the, the singular was shortened to tamal with a plural of tamales. Mm. All right. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. Then the word came into English from Spanish, and it's sort of hard to say like exactly when the word entered English because the earliest uses in English are in travelogue. So they're just like, you know, saying this is a food I saw and this is the local word for it. But from Mr. Etymology's perspective, the interesting question is when did the English back formation of the singular tamale happen? Because in Spanish, one of them is a tamal and in English, one of them is a tamale. So why did that happen and when? All right. Okay, wait, and this is called a back formation in yeah, linguistics? So, so, of course, as as our listeners all know, a back formation is when you apply the lexical rules of one language by inference to a word adopted from another language. So in this case, that means that English speakers heard the word tamales or mm-hmm. tamales and uh, assumed that was the plural of a word tamale because that's how you form plurals in English. Ah! Uh, okay, okay, I'm following. Right, it is It is possible that the word in Spanish is also a back formation from the Nahuatl word because they're like, hey, tamale, tamales, like tamales. So that would, that way, the way you form a plural in, in Spanish would go tamal, tamales. 
right? This is so interesting. Did you, hold on, Matthew. Yeah. True confessions. Did you know the phrase back formation prior to uh, meeting Mr. Etymology today? Gosh, I'm not sure which which would be like the more embarrassing confession, but the answer is yes, I did. Oh, that's the more <laughs> embarrassing confession. Okay. So, okay. So I went to the OED, of course, and the first recorded use of the English word tamale in the OED is from a writer that I've never heard of named Kate Sanborn, who Wikipedia describes as, quote, an American author, teacher, and lecturer, also a reviewer, compiler, essayist, and farmer. Sanborn was famous for her cooking and housekeeping. I'm famous for my housekeeping. It's true. Yeah. Uh, and in her humorous 1893 travelogue, A Truthful Woman in Southern California, <laughs> don't know what the title means. There's only one of them. Right. There's only one. Uh, she refers to a tamale singular, which seems to be the first time we found that in English, and I'm not going to read the rest of the sentence because it's kind of racist. Huh. Well, that is unfortunate. Yes. And the fact that the word the word tamale in English is similar to the original Nahuatl word tamale is basically a coincidence. It might have like, you know, gotten backformed in Spanish and then backformed again in English. But the point is kind of that the word tamale singular has been part of the English language for a long time. And so it's not it's not really like up to me to decide this, but I feel okay with using the the singular tamale in English rather than the Spanish tamal that that both of them seem fine to me. I'll be very curious to see what our guest has to say about it. Yeah, Maybe we should too. ask her. So we haven't walked down memory lane yet, Matthew. And we must. And we must. We uh, were ambushed. Though, like we were we were about to like set out onto memory la- lane. We were we were the victims of a brutal ambush by Mr. Etymology. <laughs> A known street tough. <laughs> well, you know, it's just as well because I have to say, I don't even remember the first time I had a tamale. I'm pretty sure that it was, I don't know. I was going to say maybe it was when I was in college mm-hmm. um, because I remember getting really excited to learn about all of the fantastic eating I could do in the mission in San Francisco. Yes. But I don't know, maybe it happened earlier than that. Anyway, Matthew, what's your memory lane for tamales? So I think kind of the same for me. I don't I don't remember having them as a kid or even necessarily in college, although it's possible since I went to college in Southern California. I do remember in the 90s, like hearing that they make their own tamales at the Mexican grocery at Pike Place Market mm-hmm. and uh, and thinking like, I don't know if I've had this before, but it sounds good. And going down and buying uh, like red chili pork and uh, green chili chicken tamales and bringing them home and uh, and steaming them at home. And they were so good. And then at some point when December was little, we started like I think it was it was wife of the show Lori's idea to start making Christmas Eve tamales. Mm-hmm. Um, and so every year now on Christmas Eve, we do like a whole production of making like way too many tamales. And uh, like we do it what just once a year. Like, And then of course, every time we have the same conversation, like these are so good, we should do it other times of year also. And we never do because it is really like an all day affair. <laughs> okay, wait a minute. So when you first started doing that, do you remember who you sort of looked to as your authority? Or it ha- has do your... you do you have a guess of who like in the in the early two thousands um, I might have looked to for for a okay. uh, Mexican recipe? I'm gonna guess you probably went to Rick Bayless. Totally, you did. And, okay. uh, and so so the recipe I make today, like you know now now I just kind of improvise with uh, with kind of like I I know like how to whip up the uh, the masa and like I'm gonna make some kind of braised pork with red chili just using using whatever I have on hand. I buy one one bag of uh, maseca uh, masadina for tamales every year. And uh, and use it that one time. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. So I feel like we should also just sort of tackle what these are. So yeah. what we're talking about here is something tasty that is stuffed or mixed into corn masa. And then it's wrapped usually in a corn husk or a banana leaf and steamed. Right. Yeah. And it is it is a Mexican dish in origin and from from like, you know, long into the pre-Hispanic period in Mexico. But it is now popular throughout Central America, the Caribbean and the U.S. with lots of regional variation. And there are I think I, I know I tend to think primarily of savory versions stuffed with meat, but there are also sweet versions. Yeah. Right? Okay. Yeah, and I think I think our guest will probably talk about this some too. Excellent. So why don't we why don't we bring on our guest and then uh, we'll uh, we'll talk about uh, her cookbook and her approach to tamales and then uh, then afterwards why don't we get into a little bit of uh, the the history? Fantastic. 
Marcela Valladolid was born in San Diego and grew up on both sides of the border in San Diego and Tijuana. Her first job was working at her aunt's cooking school. She's a chef, TV host, classically trained French pastry chef, and author of six cookbooks, including her new book, Familia, an incredibly appealing collection of approachable Mexican and Mexican-American recipes. Marcela, welcome to Spilled Milk. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So we have wanted to talk about tamales forever and knew we would like need a guest to do it because uh, we don't know enough about them ourselves. And in the book, you wrote something that really like made me feel seen, which you, you said, <laughs> with tamales, you'll always find recipes such as this that give you very large quantities. There's a reason behind that. You only want to do this once or twice a year, which uh, my family would do it <laughs> once a year. <laughs> yeah. Are, so are tamales holiday food in your family also? Like, how do you celebrate with them? Yeah. And I love that you pulled that quote from the book because I think, and I'll, I'll answer that in a second, but I think you, you hit on something like super important, right? That Sometimes Mexican cookbooks can be super intimidating because we love and respect the history attached to our recipes like so much. Yeah. So with this book, I just wanted to be like, chill, you can do this. <laughs> like, forget about all of the things that you're afraid. Tamales are labor intensive. And the reality is exactly what you just said, like set apart a day. It's definitely a holiday food or a bautizo food for like a baptism or like, yes. a, you know what I'm saying? Like a Dia de Muertos food, Day of the Dead, like you definitely want to commit to not maybe not the full day, but at least the whole morning of tamale making and making and they freeze so well. Yes. So there's no sense in going through that whole process for like four servings. There is no it right. makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> and they don't they don't last end up lasting very long in the freezer in my house. But that's just because we eat them all the time. Yeah, which is exactly what it, it, it's a great lunch food. You can pop it in the microwave. And I mean, yep. I don't have a microwave. I'm not a big fan. But what I'm saying is like there's so many ways to thaw them to just you pack them up you leave them in the freezer you separate them in portions and you've got tamales forever would you tell us about some of your memories of tamales in tijuana yeah of course well here's the thing i grew up on the south side of the border as you mentioned in tijuana but my grandfather he was the mexican consulate for belgium in Mexico, right? Okay. We didn't have social media back then. So he he extensively traveled through Europe for work or whatnot. And when he would come back, he would come back with all of the books from all the classically trained chefs, like Pont and Escoffier. Like he had every single gourmet magazine back in the day, ever since it was like a catalog. Wow. Anyway, or bon Appetit, yeah, like yep. he had them all. Anyway, I grew up with a and all of the big meals were at his home. We called it Casa Grande, the big house, because it was a very big house. And our whole family would spend like every holiday there in Casa Grande. And tamales were always sitting next to these like beautiful, classic French, really intricate dishes. So I grew up with this most amazing fusion of highly respected and, and very authentically prepared tamales next to like, I don't know, a beef Wellington. <laughs> it was amazing. But tamales, I would I would be lying to you if, if for us, they sat on a, on a very traditional table with only the Mexican like accoutrements. It was very Euro and very Mexican. And it was combined in these most awesome, huge, massive tables. Our family events truly did revolve around food. And tamales were always a centerpiece along with something very intricate and very French. How many people would you have around the table at a celebration? like that or a holiday? Well, it was always two tables. It was a, it was about 16 in the main dining room table with the adults. Uh -huh. And then the kids would, we had en la mesa de los niños. We had a smaller table for the kids. Yep. So you literally, you literally had to wait for somebody to die at the adult table for somebody to be bumped. <laughs> for somebody to be bumped to the adult uh, table. I yeah. love it. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Could you please walk us through the tamale making process? Of course. And first of all, like Molly and I are both are both English speakers who maybe know a tiny bit of Spanish. And so like we we end up saying tamale in English, but I know probably should say tamal when we're talking about uh, the dish in like a Mexican context. Oh, to tamal singular, tamales plural. Uh, so okay. So tamale, tamal, tamal. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll see how that goes. We'll see so, how that goes. It's fine. That's also something that I mentioned in the book. Like people get so freaked out about stuff like that that they that they stay away from the whole process of getting themselves involved, especially these days where people are so like, oh, don't make tamales unless you're Mexican. Like, and that's just not my jam. My jam is sure. everybody's welcome to the table. You want to call it tamales? You can call it whatever the hell you want, as long as you make it right. 
and it tastes good and your family eats it, you're welcome to my party and to my cooking table and to the whole thing. But yes. Thank okay. you. Thank so how do you make them? Uh, say, we're, say we're using corn husks rather than banana leaves. Like, uh, what does the process look like? Yeah. Well, you can use either or. First of all is your masarina. That's the most important part of the process, which is your corn, which is uh, the word in Spanish is nixtamalizado. And it's really important that I talk about this process. It's where the actual kernels of the corn are cooked in a solution that has slaked lime, nixtamal, which makes more readily available all of the nutrients that are in mm -hmm. the corn. That's why entire mm -hmm. civilizations were able to, you know, survive on maize, on corn. So through that process, and plus it gives it a great flavor too. Mm -hmm. So nixtamalización is where you cook the kernels in a giant pot forever. You grind it, you get this masa, and then you need to consider the addition of fat. Well, we could also get into a variety of corns, but honestly, I don't want to get too confusing. There's <laughs> yeah, so to be clear, you do not have to do this nixtamalización uh, process No, I'm just, but, but <laughs> can I tell you, though? But it's, no, well, you it's can. important, yeah. You, you absolutely can, but mm -hmm. you don't need to. They have so many readily available, already ground up, ready masas a little, that looks like flour, and you don't need to think about it or stress. But it's good that people know that that was the process. That's what, what made it from the mazorca, from the maiz, to the bag. Like something really important happened yes. that's been happening since pre-Hispanic times. It's, I think, mm -hmm. one of the few recipes that still exists that are still being made as it was made thousands of years ago. Yeah. And that's pretty cool. That's amazing. That it's the original recipe, the original KFC, like the original <laughs> recipe for tortillas. We, we got that one in Mexico. Anyway. Once you get it in the bag, you can also, I mean, if you're not cooking fresh corn, there's so many great varieties. Like you even have access now in the U.S. to land-raised corn varieties from like Macienda and other great brands that'll give you really good masarina made from really beautiful, sustainably produced and harvested corn, which is amazing. So you can use blue corn, red corn, yellow corn, white corn. There's so many varieties these days and you can make tamales with anyone. Okay. And then you have to consider what fat you will use. Traditionally, of course, it's lard. Nothing to say about that, except it's the best flavor. You've always <laughs> yep. got the option of, I don't know, coconut oil, vegetable shortening, even olive oil. Like you can do whatever the heck you want in terms of fat. But the traditional method, the most flavorful method, and it gives you, honestly, I think the best texture, more fluffiness, is lard. Good old pig fat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then there's a couple of tips and tricks in terms of when you add the liquid. Uh, some folks say that, at, well, you have to add it warm. You don't want to distress mm -hmm. the masa too much. So even temperature throughout is my recommendation when adding all of the ingredients together. Not hot, but maybe lukewarm room temperature. My choice is definitely chicken broth, obviously for the same reason, more flavor. Yep. It is said that adding, you know, tomatillos have the husk. If you save the husk from tomatillos and freeze them and add them to your liquid just while you're bringing it to temperature, what I don't know which ingredient is, but one of the ingredients in the tomatillo husk will help with the texture and fluffiness of your tamal. Oh, that's I've never heard that before. That's so interesting. Yeah. You know how they, the tomatillos can be a little bit gelatinous? One of those ingredients helps in the fluffiness of yeah. the tamales. Yeah. So that's pretty cool as well. And then in terms of mixing it together, and I talk about this in terms of tortillas. I don't want, I don't get too much into it in terms of tamales, but in the tortillas, I'm like, and I think I mentioned it with tamales too. I say, listen, if somebody's giving you an exact ratio of water to fat to masarina, it's, I'm, I don't want to swear on your podcast, but it's, it's cool. fine. Like, we allow it. It's, it's bullshit. Like, uh, <laughs> because the reality is, unless we're all working with the exact same masarina, and yeah. we're all working with the exact same, just the masarina itself. Mm -hmm. There's so much variation in terms of existing moisture, how coarse or fine it is, uh, if it's salty or not. Salt. Like there's so many variations within the masa itself that for someone to say, this is the precise recipe. You're going to need two cups of this, one cup of that, and one cup of that. It's one of those things that the reality is until you make it over and over and over again and you find the successful ratios for you, that's when you're good at making tamales. Uh, yeah. You can mm -hmm. follow recipe. You can follow my recipe. I mean, I'm honest about it. But the reality is unless you're in my Chula Vista kitchen using my ingredients and my pots and my the temperature, you know, the flame on my stove that you know what I'm saying? Like if uh -huh. it's the exact same scenario then go word for word for that recipe. For all my other recipes, I'm just like, follow them to the T. I will fail you not. 
But with tamales and tortillas, I like to say it's one of those things that you just have to, you know, it's experience. Yeah, I imagine that there's a real, um, there's a learning curve to, uh, to knowing the feel, just like yeah. the muscle memory almost. Totally, to totally. I didn't start making them, honestly, until I was older. People were like, so you were making tamales since you were in your mother's womb? And I was like, no, I really, <laughs> I was not. Like, I didn't really start cooking until I was in my late teens. Uh, to be honest with you, my mom was like, I don't want any kids in the kitchen. It's like a rite of passage. Like, you don't, yeah, yeah Americans are so much nicer about having kids in the kitchen and like, oh, the egg, it broken it went on the floor it's so cute like this <laughs> and i'm just like my mom i'm like get them away from me i don't have the patience and i need it to come out perfect yeah um, uh, molly and i both have kids and we definitely know okay. that feeling yes. yeah yes it was especially when I'm making like the intricate traditional Mexican stuff. I'm like, keep them in the TV room. I don't care if they watch, watch eight hours of Netflix. Like I'm going to do this by myself. Um, so the, honestly, that was my upbringing. Like I wasn't, I was observing, but I wasn't mm-hmm. getting my hands in it, to be honest with you until later in life. But when I started making them, my personal mistake was always that the masa wasn't spreadable. Like I made it too thick because intuitively Ah, you wanted to make it like Play-Doh because you can form it and it's so easy and there's no spill and there's no drama. But the reality is if you want a fluffy tamal that really when you bite into it, there's zero resistance and it just kind of melts in your mouth, it's a spread. I think a lot of people don't know that about tamales, mm. especially if you purchase ready-made masa. And then I have the, some. I have a Northgate market here that has great quality masa, but I end up having to mix in fat and liquid because you want it to spread. Because right. if that masa is made properly, it's because it looks like a spring. You're like, how is this going to become a fluffy tamal? If it's made properly, it'll poof inside the corn husk. Yep. Uh, so you you want it to be a spread. I, I love that we've gotten this far and have only talked about the masa so far because like <laughs> it's easy like you know no, like no no some, no no this is no I'm serious because yeah. like you know sometimes you get like sort of American style tamales that are like a ton of filling with a little bit of corn around it but this is really like a corn dish that is flavored with a little bit of other stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the thing. Like it's the masa itself. Once you taste it done right that's like your favorite part of the tamal, to be honest with you. Like, that's the good part. Like, I would even forgive you if what you purchased was the filling. Because if you go to your mercadito, you will find some awesome carne en salsa roja, pollo Mm -hmm. en salsa verde. Like, you will find all of the things and you can just stuff your tamal. And honestly, it's going to be really good. If you get the masa right, when you bite into the masa, like that's the star of the show, right? Yeah. And I think that's what we've kind of, you know, there's a misunderstanding of that. There's like a huge focus on the filling, but the star of this show is actually the corn. Mm -hmm. Totally. Talking about the filling or the flavors, what are your favorite fillings for tamal? Well, I grew up with the traditional uh, carne en salsa roja, which is a shredded kind of low and slow braised shredded beef with an assortment of different kinds of chiles. And then the other one is pollo en salsa verde. So simple, just again, a slow cooked chicken that's shredded and cooked in salsa verde and chiles, a mix of probably serrano and jalapeno. And those two, those two were the always the ones that always existed in our home. And the sweet variety, los tamales de piña, the pineapple tamales, um, which always made kind of smaller. And I would eat them like they were Tic Tacs because they were so good and so addictive. <laughs> like you don't notice and all of a sudden you've eaten like eight of them. Yes. They're and so have, small and delicious. You have recipes for, for the, the pineapple tamales and yes. the and the chicken and salsa verde in the book. Yes. Yes. And those are, were the ones that I grew up with. And honestly, those were the ones that, that I ate the most. I think rajas con queso, which is mm-hmm. poblano uh, charred, peeled, cut into strips. And literally you just make it again, like it's just masa with a few strips of the poblano and some Oaxaca cheese that ends up kind of steaming and getting all melty and fabulous. But again, it's just much more masa than anything else. And yeah. you've got the option, like you mentioned, to either use the corn husk or the banana leaf, and either one will work just fine. You know, you mentioned Oaxacan cheese. Are there regional styles of tamales throughout Mexico? Um, absolutely. But the reality is uh, the story and the more traditional recipes, like everything is going to come from mostly central and southern Mexico. Okay. Yeah. Us in the north, like, for example, where I come from, Tijuana, 
is a mm-hmm. is a baby city compared uh-huh. to southern Mexico. So actually, that's why in northern Mexico, where I'm from, we're much more allowed to like play with our foods. <laughs> Mexico is still very attached to the traditional, almost pre-Hispanic recipes. So the varieties, you're not going to get that much of a variety in terms of the traditional flavors. Mm-hmm. You go to like Budol and some of the more fusion, super modern restaurants by like Enrique Olvera, and you'll get, you know, you get like frambuesa, like raspberry tamales, or you get like different or masa de chocolate, like it's made with chocolate, the masa itself. Like you'll get so many Sounds different varieties. They're really delicious. But the reality is the traditional ones, the ones I grew up with, like that was just the, it was it's, it was a short menu. And we kind of just stuck sure. to that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Tell us more about your new book. So so in addition to classic recipes like the tamales, uh, like one dish that caught my eye was the um, creamy chipotle spaghetti with cilantro parmesan croutons, which yeah. uh, like I am definitely going to be baking very soon. What what was your approach to the recipes in this book? That's my editor's favorite recipe. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> um, that's Mike's favorite recipes. He said he's made it a million times. And when I posted about that recipe, well, the book, let me tell you how the book started. I started doing online cooking classes during pandemic just mm-hmm. because I was bored and scared out of my mind, just like sure. everybody else. And I wanted something to, oh, number one, I was looking for a new source of income because all everything just went away. Like for every, I was unemployed, just like planet Earth. Everything it went away. It was so terrifying. Yes. Terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, and Philip, my partner was like, you should do online cooking classes. I'm like, no, I'm too cool for that. Like, I'm not gonna do that. And then Selena Gomez had me on her show and I saw how we produced the most beautiful show ever with like two people because it was pandemic. And I was like, okay, if she can do it, I can do it. So I started doing those online cooking classes and it was just so amazing. And the rep, because I wasn't doing it for a network, I was just honestly just cooking what I cook my friends and family. So they were much more, hence the chipotle spaghetti. I grew up with that recipe. A lot mm-hmm. of us in Tijuana grew up with that recipe. It's a, oh, nice. it's kind of an, it's, Honestly, it's fideo seco is what it is, mm-hmm. but it's made, which is a um, fideo is just a, a Mexican version of like one inch angel hair pasta yep. pieces that you just cook with a chipotle tomato broth, but it becomes basically, it looks like spaghetti. But I just cooked all of the recipes that I would cook for my friends and family. And mid year, I was like, this is a book. And I took, you know, half of the recipes and I went out and sold the proposal and I was like, okay, great. This is this book is writing itself because I have to write the, the recipes for the classes anyway. So fantastic. But that was one of the recipes that I was literally just like, this was a weeknight meal for us in Tijuana, like weekly. It was something that my mom would make all the time. And when I posted about it, so many people from throughout Mexico were like, I thought I w- we were the only weirdos eating chipotle <laughs> spaghetti. My friends vividly remember it from our childhood having giant platters of it in our home. And it was just one of I thought it was just one of the, you know, many dishes that trickle down from the from the north north of the border states down to Mexico and just kind of combined. But apparently it was I realized during that process that it's popular throughout Mexico. People are eating chipotle cream spaghetti like all over the place. Awesome. I can't wait to try it. So where can people find you online and what would you like to plug besides Familia? Oh, my gosh. I do most everything on Instagram at Chef Marcella. Uh, same name on Facebook, Marcela Valladolid. I think it's Chef Marcela Valladolid. So that's where I am. On my website, casamarcela.com. I have been the last couple of years I've really, really wanted to bring to the U.S. and promote the artisanal work of all of my paisanos in Mexico. So I either create or curate products for the home and table from made partnering with artisans um, and bringing their work to the U.S. So that has been super fun. Where are you guys? Where's home for you guys? We're in Seattle. Oh, you're in Seattle. Well, I'm on my way to New York now. I'm on the Today Show in a couple of days, but I'm also doing a awesome. yeah, big book signing out in Williamsburg. That's super exciting. All of the info is on my Instagram and then back here in California for a big one in a store here in San Diego called Artelexia. But yeah, casamarcela.com for all of, uh, I'm oh, every day of the dead, I do a box of artisanal product to help people set up their altar for day of the dead. Because like I said, I like to invite everyone to the party. So I think in educating people about the tradition and bringing real, beautiful, not stereotypical pieces for their altars. So we're doing that this month as well. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, Marcella, thank you so much for joining us on Spilled Milk. This has been an absolute delight. Thank you so much, you guys. This episode is brought to you by Town Place Suites by Marriott. 
Whether you're traveling for work, need a place to stay while your home is being remodeled, or maybe you're just enjoying a relaxing week away, well, Town Place Suites by Marriott has all the comforts of home. Yeah, so they've got a full kitchen. Uh, they've got you can borrow appliances like if you want a blender or a slow cooker while you're traveling you can borrow it no charge uh-huh so like you could invite your friends or your coworkers over for like a post meeting drink you can bring your pet totally you, allowed oh I love this oh I see they even have special pet items you yep. can use and they have the built-in alpha closet system nothing makes me happier <laughs> when I am traveling and I have like a place to put away my clothes mm-hmm. Molly has seen what happens when I don't have a place to put away my clothes nobody wants to see nobody, that nobody yeah so like a whole closet system where I can really like unpack for reals I am down well this is made for you then and this is town place Suites by Marriott. Town Place Suites by Marriott has all the amenities you need to feel at home during your stay. Find the comforts of home at Town Place Suites. Go there with Marriott Bonvoy. This episode is brought to you by Masterclass. Masterclass is the website that takes you from that thing you've always wanted to learn to learning that thing. Well, and you can learn it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. Oh, come on. Really the best in the world? Yeah. Like, remember I watched those videos with uh, with Steph Curry on, like, you know, how to have proper, like, basketball shooting form and That's stuff. That's right. You And you have been sinking so many threes <laughs> since then. It's ridiculous. I just can't stop. Um, okay. Well, I took a class with Hans Zimmer, film composer. Maybe you've heard of <laughs> movies such as The Lion King. Mm. Maybe you've heard of Gladiator. Yep. The Dark Knight. Dune. He did all of those. I loved And Dune. now he's teaching me how to do it. Like the art of making Has people feel to things. To, to teach me? Yeah. Yeah, because, because I've got a master class subscription. Oh, okay. All right. Well, you know, Matthew, I also hear that if you want to take a class, say, from like Alice Waters or Thomas Keller or even like Yotam Orolengi, yeah. you can get essentially what are like private lessons. Now, granted, they're they're... They're on Masterclass. Yes. But private lessons did, from right. these people. Odalenghi doesn't come to your house, That's but right. virtually he does. That's right. So Masterclass makes all of this possible, and you get unlimited access to the very world's best teachers. And you will get 15% off an annual membership right now at masterclass.com slash spilledmilk15. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash spilledmilk15. Masterclass.com slash spilledmilk15. That was great. I hope we I hope we can have Mar- uh, Marcella on again. She was delightful. Mm-hmm. I I wrote possibly too much about the history of tamales because I found it interesting. This is this is going to be the theme for this episode. Like, here's a thing Matthew found interesting that, that he will try to make interesting for everyone else. I think this is really interesting too because I I think that. At least when I was a young school child, there was definitely the same way that I think every kid has a period when they're really interested in ancient Egypt or a period when they're really into Greek myths. Yeah. I think that every American school kid at some point has a period when they're really into these like ancient civilizations from the area we we now think of as Mexico and other parts of Central America. So the yeah. Aztecs, the Mayan people. I'm really excited to geek out on this, Matthew. Okay. Let's do it. So tamales are a very old food, like old enough that we will probably never know for sure within like a thousand year margin how old they are. But it seems pretty clear that the Toltec civilization ate them. That was uh, the civilization associated with uh, the city of Teotihuacan. We found uh, like not not we, me and Molly, but but archaeologists uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. have found fossilized corn husks uh, in Teotihuacan dating to the first century BCE. And mm-hmm. it's possible, not sure, but uh, some anthropologists think that they, they may go back further than that to the Olmec civilization. But for sure, people living in both the Mayan and Aztec empires ate tamales. That is just, uh, it like blows my yeah. mind. It's so cool. Like like Marcella talked about that, that like, you know, corn built these empires and like learning how to unlock the nutrients in corn made possible a, a population explosion. Because like if you try and live on polenta, you will get pellagra, I think, is the, is the deficiency disease because it's not uh, nixtamalized. 
We we talked about this on some previous yes, episode, yes, right? Yes, we did. Yeah. I think we did. Did we do a masa episode or tortilla or a, episode? Maybe maybe it was the tortilla episode. That would make more sense. And so so the Mayans cracked it many thousands of years ago, and uh, you know made corn like the the. Uh, staple of their diet, and tamales were part of that. There is a classic Mayan vase that was created somewhere between 600 and 800 CE that is now in the British Museum uh, that shows tamales being offered as penance to a nobleman. You can you can see a picture of this on Wikipedia. <laughs> and I see here that the Maya made these special preserved tamales for hunters or travelers, so they would cook them in like extra wood ashes to make a hard shell, so that they would last longer on the road? Is yeah, that right? it sounds like they could last for like three weeks. And uh, wow. I, think, I think the idea is probably like, remember when we talked about pastry coffins? <laughs> yes. yes. I think this is probably a similar mm-hmm. thing where you would you would not eat the outer layer, but you would eat like the inner layer of corn and the mm-hmm. filling. So how do we, hold on, how do we know, I mean, other than like these, uh, these ancient vases and things like that, how do we know what we know about tamales dating all the way back to the Mayan and Aztec civilizations? and before that well, even. it's mostly mostly vase based <laughs> okay right okay, so, as all knowledge should be really so in researching this i came across a historical figure whose name i had heard but couldn't have told you anything about him and it is an interesting character named uh, bernardino de sahagun uh, who was a spanish franciscan monk who came to mexico as a missionary you know along with uh, with spanish colonization and ended up writing a surprisingly sympathetic ethnography and history of the Aztec people, including his final book was a book about the Spanish conquest that was told entirely from the indigenous perspective. It was so interesting reading about this. Like, I, I want to read more about, about uh, this person because I kept wanting to, to say like, oh, this was a good guy or a bad guy. Mm-hmm. And wow, can you not like wrap up this guy through either one of those lenses? Because like, okay. you know, he was he was very committed to converting the the people of Mexico to Catholicism uh, and just thought like that there were better ways to do it than like Cortez's way uh-huh. um, and that like understanding like what do the people what are what are the people's existing customs and beliefs and language would be helpful with the with the missionary mission something came up in we were reading Anne of the Island we're mm-hmm. still on book three <laughs> uh, we were reading Anne of the Island and there was something about a missionary in it June was asking me what a missionary is and wow was it hard <laughs> to wow I mean, especially like at the end of the day, at bedtime, trying to find the right words <laughs> oh, man, for yeah. what a missionary is or was. It was tough. Um, yeah. Have you ever had like a, a bedtime conversation with your kid about death? Oh, oh, all the time. Yeah. It's, it's the I only time to talk about so about much. upsetting things. <laughs> yeah. Like I was like, I know I, I and I never did like, you know, I never wanted to be the kind of parent who would be like, if I could just like shut up and go to sleep, we'll talk about this tomorrow. So I never did that, but but I sure understand where the impulse comes from. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, okay. I'm gonna turn to, to Wikipedia for a quote here. So in book ten of uh, of Sahagun's Codex, he describes Aztec tamales u- using a variety of corn for their flour base and were cooked in earth ovens or oya, which were heated by the, st- the steam of dried cane grown and harvested for the express purpose of cooking tamales. Fillings would consist of meat such as turkey, fish, frog, axolotl, or gopher, fruit, beans, squash seed, turkey egg, and even no filling. Hmm. They would be seasoned with chilies or seeds if they were savory and honey if they were sweet. I'm sorry, I've got to go back to the axolotl. <laughs> yeah, that's like a salamander, right? It is. It is. And I, I feel like when people think of axolotls, especially right now, they're, I think they're really like trendy in, in like the world of stuffed animals and well, they, illustration yeah. I mean, and stuff like that. It can also be stuffing for a, um, for a tamale. But like the ones that I think people think of are the albino ones too. So they're like <laughs> albino with like these funny or sure. the, these pink ruffles or like around their collar. And I got to say, I cannot imagine eating one of those. Yeah, but I think like, you know, there there are always going to be like things, things you didn't grow up eating that are hard sure. to imagine. Sure, like, sure, yeah, sure. Like, I, I know no, I'm no, saying something also, obvious. This is, this is like a really cute animal. <laughs> it's yeah. really cute. Yeah, while I mean, also being kind of slimy. <laughs> so so is a goat. <laughs> um, so, That's true. So, so are a, a lot of things. So are cows. Yeah. Cows are really cute, it turns out. Is this is this the episode where we like suddenly become vegetarians? 
It might be. Okay. <laughs> it um, might be. All right. So here's some more from Sahagun. Quote, it was customary for Aztec women to stay up for two to three days cooking tamales before a wedding. In terms of festivities, the most notable was uh, a name that I'm not going to pre- attempt to pronounce, but uh, we'll put in the show notes, uh, mm-hmm. which was celebrated during the 18th month of the calendar round. The name of the celebration translates to the eating of tamales stuffed with amaranth greens and was a celebration of the fire deity Ixcosauqui. Matthew, I have a question, by the way. Please. Good job. I mean, I, I yeah, don't know if you pronounced that history. correctly, but yeah. I, I, I admire your efforts. Uh, Matthew, quick question. Do we have any like celebration days that are named for the food that we eat? On them. Um, I mean, there's like National Ice Cream Day, no, National Hot Dog Day. not those like day. internet holidays, but like <laughs> this is called, like the, the celebration is called the eating of tamales stuffed with amaranth green. Isn't that, isn't that an incredibly that evocative is, name? I it sounds love great. that. Yeah. We have like, uh, what do we have? Like National Turkey Day. There we go. Turkey yeah, Day. Turkey Day. There you go. Turkey Day. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So, Matthew, when you do not have a freezer full of your own homemade tamales from Christmas Eve, where do you purchase tamales or do you even? Do you just wait until you you stock the freezer again? No, no, no. I like frozen tamales are great. So like or or refrigerated. So like I like uh, have you tried the the Freelard Tamale Company? Mm -mm. Oh, yeah. Those are those are like local ish to you. um, Yeah. And uh, are really good. Yeah. I think they're probably at uh, like uh, Fremont Farmers Market, maybe Ballard Farmers Market. You would, okay. I guess, you would notice if they were at Ballard Farmers Market, but but uh, they're not in any uh, like grocery stores or anything. That's a good question. You should check their website. We'll link to their website if you if you Great. happen to be in Seattle. I think like at least West Coast and maybe like more more broadly distributed than that is in the in your grocer's freezer case. There's a Tucson Tamale Company, which I first noticed at Awajamaya, which just has like a small selection of of Mexican frozen foods, and they are kind of pricey as far as frozen tamales go. I think I want to say they're like uh, two two for eight bucks, something like that, which mm-hmm. uh, which was made me be like, okay, I guess I have to try these once. And uh, and unfortunately, they were really, really good. Okay. <laughs> so I uh, mean, I have to say, when you really think about it, like the amount of money that a lot of us spend on meat, for instance. Sure. Per serving, tamales... Uh, and that sounds fine to me. Yeah, no, like, I, yeah, I don't want to be like one of these people like, you know, like this, this particular, uh, you know, national cuisine has to be cheap. No, no, I, I don't. I, I think our listeners know that's okay. not what you mean. Yeah. I want to talk just a little bit more about like the the process of making because we didn't with uh, with Marcella, we didn't quite get into uh, like like the spreading of the masa. Like, you know, she mentioned that the, the texture needs to be right. But like. Mm-hmm. The thing I want to impress on people is, first of all, like you should make tamales at home. It's an experience that will bring everyone in your house together. There may be some squabbling. You will end up with an enormous amount of good food. And you have to you will practice over and over spreading the masa onto the corn husk, which you've soaked mm-hmm. earlier in the day. And it's a it's a real learning process because mm-hmm. like, you know, a funny a funny shaped like, you know, weirdly sized tamale is still going to taste delicious. Uh, so you don't have to worry about it, but you're going spend a lot of time like saying like oh i left a hole in the in the uh in the moss on that one oh like i spread this one like on uh, on the wrong side like you know all on the left like it will really make you feel like a uh like a child that sounds semi-painful but then you won't be a child forever because someone will die and then you'll move up to the adults table (laughs) oh good okay okay uh matthew you know your description of making these or learning how to make them i presume in the first few years reminds me of so about a year ago actually like maybe even this week a year ago we got together with two other families and we made dumplings we made pot stickers basically to to freeze and I had figured, so we were doing this at our friend Joe and Leslie's house, and I brought like a chicken and shiitake filling, Mm -hmm. and we also had some sort of a pork filling. Anyway, I figured we were going to use like pre-made wrappers. Oh, no. Joe wanted to make the dough from Mm -hmm. scratch, so we made the dough. I mean, it was beautiful dough. The learning curve, however, as you can imagine, there's already sort of a learning curve for learning how to fold them, right? But the learning curve, too, for rolling out the dough and trying to get it even and all of that stuff. Wow, did we make some ugly, 
ugly dumplings. Yeah, but I bet they were still good. They were still delicious, though. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I hardly ever make my own uh, dumpling skins just because it's so much more work, but it really is better. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, well, this was so, so good. I loved talking with Marcella, and I'm so excited for her book, Familia. All right. So, uh, Molly, do we have any segments? Perhaps a bit of spilled mail? We have some spilled mail that I love. It is from listener Steve. First of all, Steve, let's hang out, okay? Okay. So everybody keep in mind, Steve's my new friend. Friend, I friend just decided. Steve. Friend, friend, friend of the show and friend of the host of the show <laughs> or uh, fo-fo-ho-dose. Okay. All right, Steve. Fothotos. Here's what he says. I just got home from orchestra rehearsal, made myself a martini, and decided to write this email since you asked. When my wife, then girlfriend, Mimi, started vet school at UC Davis in 1990, her classmate Peter instantly became one of our closest friends. We were in our late 20s, and he was in his mid-30s. We all loved cooking and would have dinners at each other's house every weekend. At his house, we'd often have a gin and tonic and he'd have a martini. We would taste the martini and have pretty much the same reaction that you and Molly did. But we kept trying. By the time she became a DVM in 1994, Mimi and I loved martinis. Okay. Part of the reason that people didn't want vermouth in their martinis during the cocktail dark ages is that they usually had crappy gallo vermouth that had been sitting for eons in the back of the cabinet. Vermouth is wine and goes bad if it sits at room temperature for months, just like a bottle of white wine will. Vermouth should be kept in the refrigerator. If you want to try a martini-adjacent drink, I'd recommend a Poet's Dream. Two ounces of gin, three-quarter ounce dry vermouth, a quarter ounce Benedictine, two dashes orange bitters, and a lemon twist. You can leave out the bitters if you don't want to buy a bottle just for that. Sorry if this is too long. The martini is finished and has definitely kicked in. All the best, Steve. Okay, I'm going to throw your friend Steve under the bus now because I, I cut this uh, this letter by like 70%. <laughs> oh, really? Because I was like, Steve, your letter's not even that long, dude. We're friends now. You can keep going. Oh, now that you know that, are you like dumping him as a friend? Uh, Well, no, I'm feeling like we're even better friends now. That's because true. He- you also write a lot of words. I do write a lot of words. Um, Anyway, Steve, I love that you came home from orchestra rehearsal and made a martini. I love what it sounds like uh, your friendship with with Peter was all about. What a delight. Uh, You, sir, know how to live, even though I don't know if I'm going to hang in there with you on martinis. Yeah, I mean, I do. I did get the sense like when Molly and I did the episode, like, you know, if we tried this like in the right context where like other people were drinking them like 17 more times, probably we would grow to appreciate them. But Mm -hmm. it's not going to (laughs) happen. I did that with beer when Mm -hmm. I was like 22 years old. I was like a lot of people do. I want to like this. And anyway, it's possible. We'll okay. see. Anyway, Steve, thank you so much. Yeah, and I, the poet's dream really does sound good. I would try it. It does. Uh, Matthew, what you snacking? Hey, what you snacking? You gotta tell me what you're snacking. Or I'll release the kraken. So what you snacking? What you snacking? Have I got a snacking for you? Wife of the Show, Lori, and I were at uh, PCC Supermarket the other day and uh, made an impulse buy by the cash register of Hebel and Company Halva, made in Los Angeles, and specifically the Molly Yeh peanut butter chocolate crisp flavor. It comes in like a little a little plastic dish and you kind of have to chip it out with a spoon. I guess you could like invert it and like cut slices of the whole thing, but I've been chipping it out with a spoon. It is so good. It's the kind of thing like I took the first taste. I'm like, mm, I don't know if this is really like giving me like as much like uh, salt or peanut. And whoa, there it is. And like the flavor <laughs> just blooms in your mouth. Three times now in the last couple of days, I've been out on a walk and thinking to myself, mm, I'm going to have a spoonful of that halva when I get home. <laughs> Uh, that sounds so fantastic. That's uh, Hebel and Company Halva. We'll link to their website. Uh, they're not they're not sponsoring us or anything. I just really liked it and uh, 
says where you can get it or order it online. Great. Uh, Matthew, I understand that you have been reading Banana Yoshimoto. Yes. And not, in fact, her new book, The Premonition, which I am very much looking forward to and probably will have read by the time you hear this episode, but it's not quite out yet. I just reread her previous book, Moshi Moshi, which I think is from like 2016. It is such a beautiful book. So I, I don't even think it's like, uh, you know, considered one of her best, but I think it is. The uh, the main character, Yoshie, like recently lost her father in a, in a murder-suicide, and she and her mother move into a small apartment in in uh, this bohemian neighborhood in Tokyo called Shimokitazawa that I've been to a number of times. You know, Yoshie wants like answers to like, why, why did her father die in this way that she never would have expected? And she doesn't really get answers. It's not it's not a detective kind of book. It's about her relationship with her mother, um, who, you know, mm. she's living with in this tiny apartment. There's a sexy jazz musician. There's she works in a French bistro and there's like beautiful descriptions of like the food they're serving at this French bistro. It's a hard book to describe because it is it is one of those Japanese novels where like essentially the the plot is like, you know, time time passes and the seasons change. Um, but I want to read the part like a passage from this book that like absolutely like blew my mind. Okay. At first I'd come through like a tourist, but now I could feel every one of my footsteps leaving a mark on the ground here and sense how they added up over time. Each day I walked this town, every step my feet inscribed, I was also building my inner landscape. They'd keep growing in tandem and a hint of my presence would linger even after I was gone. I was experiencing that form of love for the first time. Ah. <sighs> It's a book about the relationship between a person and a neighborhood, like oh, as much Matthew. as anything else. It's it's so good and it's short. Like you can easily read it in one sitting. And she's just a great writer. Oh, she is fantastic. I remember reading Kitchen mm -hmm. way back when. Oh, I forgot to even mention this. Yeah, the teenager of the show, December, Totsdi, who will be who'll be no longer a teenager very soon, recently read uh, Kitchen as an assignment and loved it. Mm. Um, and, and I feel like I should read it again. I, I read it as a teenager. And I haven't read it since. Okay, yeah. So I'm excited for for Banana Yoshimoto's new book, but also like uh, go grab a copy of Moshi Moshi. It's great. Excellent. Well, our producer, as always, is Abby Circatella. As mentioned, Molly likes to write a lot of words, and some of those words can be found in her <laughs> newsletter, uh, I've Got uh -huh. a Feeling, which is available at mollyweisenberg.substack.com. They're good words, I should say. I, I, oh, thanks. I'm not saying too many words. I also write some bad words. <laughs> that's that's true, like poop. <laughs> like poop. Yeah. yeah. Like butt, B U T. <laughs> isn't isn't it um, the best when like a, when a kid thinks they're saying a bad word and it's something like butt? No. Uh, so, well, this is a no. long story, but <laughs> well, no, I was going to say that June once used the phrase "donkey hole," which I, <laughs> I, so good. I, I was so proud. Yeah, yeah. Was it I like, was really like proud. get a load of this donkey hole? <laughs> <laughs> okay. And she was anyway, pointing uh, to a donkey. Uh, you know, unrelated to, to this, Matthew sings, Matthew plays music. Matthew is in two bands. It's true. Um, yeah. yeah, my band, uh, Early to the Airport, is possibly working on the beginnings of a new EP. I'll keep you posted on that. It's not coming out soon. But I'm really excited about some of the songs. I mean, all of them. Excellent. And how can people find you? Uh, oh, just Early to the Airport on uh, on any platform, any streaming platform. Well, thank you for listening to Spilled Milk. The show that is extra, like, like extra crispy on the outside uh, so you can take us anywhere, but please uh. consume us within 20 days <laughs> because it's better for our podcast stats that way. <laughs> Molly Weisenberg. I'm Matthew Amsterburton. Excuse me. Oh, you really, you made that work there in the end. Thanks. The legends are true. But overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes. The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.